The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Welcome to the Movie Club Podcast. This is episode number nine. Once again, we are uh, talking about two movies, uh, as we do every month, uh, that we've picked ahead of time. And uh, this month, we're talking about Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures and uh, Lucas Moodyson's Fucking Them All, also known as Show Me Love. Uh, so uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Sean from FilmJunk.com. My name is Kurt from Row3.com and TwitchFilm.net. And I'm Marina from Row3.com. And I'm Andrew from Row3. And uh, notably absent this week is our good friend Jay from FilmJunk and the documentary blog, who um, I guess didn't want to watch the movies. And shame on him. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, so fucking them all was voted on by you, the listeners. So um, that's why it was uh, why it is on this show and why we're talking about it. And uh, then Heavenly Creatures was one that we picked to pair with it. And um, I guess uh, we might as well just jump into the first one. So we're going to start with fucking them all now, Kurt. This was your nomination. Why don't you give us a little bit of an overview, overview of the movie and why you picked it? Okay. Um, this movie won a crapload of awards over its release time and festival circuit that it did. And it I'm not sure if it was uh, Moodyson's first film or not, but uh, it certainly brought him onto the uh, um, worldwide stage. And... It looks like it wasn't his first. He did a movie called Talk and possibly something else. I think they're that. shorts. But anyway, um, why I picked it, it was because it's a high school, you know, like first love kind of story. But it's unusual in that it's not as cliche driven as usually a, a lot of the uh, American or British takes on the genre. And it just has a great visual feel to it. I think it was shot on 16 millimeters, so when it blew up, it's got this great grainy, almost verite right. look to it. And uh, on top of the two main characters, I mean, for, for a good chunk of the movie, you're not even sure who is the main character because it it flips back and forth between uh, two girls and and uh, a couple of the boyfriends and one of their sisters but also the the um, the parents particularly the parents of the um, uh, dark-haired girl um, are portrayed really strongly and in teen movies the parents are usually villains or you know sort of ineffectual bystanders and I, I thought the parents in this movie were really portrayed well so I guess there was just a lot of elements in this that made it for a much closer to a real teen story than what is usually like manufactured 
Right. Now, was this your first time? or Had you seen it before, I guess? or Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, okay. I'd seen it before. It's probably, yeah, I'd, I'd go out and say that it's my favorite high school. Like, you know, screw the Breakfast Club or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the, whatever the reigning um, champion for teen movie is. This is this is my favorite. Well, I, I've seen it several times. So uh, Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I guess the other thing that... I, if people have already watched it, they know this, but I don't know if you mentioned that it's it's a teenage love story, but it's a lesbian love story, or I guess it's somewhat debatable. But, um, you know, I guess that in itself is kind of a little bit different. Um, but uh, maybe I guess we can each kind of go around, give first impressions. Um, I will say I had not seen it before, hadn't even heard of it before. Um, but... Um, as far as um, one thing that I was very surprised about, I thought the title, Fucking Amal, I thought Amal was the name of a character, which I'm sure, I'm, I'm assuming probably other people did too, but I was very surprised to find out that Amal is actually the name of the town where it takes place, which is kind of strange, because then I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so that was kind of surprising. Now the other thing, um, this was kind of a hard movie to track down, I don't know how everybody else watched it, but I, I did have to resort to the internet. And the weird thing is the version that I downloaded, and I didn't realize this at the time. Andrew, if you saw the same version, you may have noticed this as well. It's actually dubbed in Italian. So, like, I wasn't even actually listening to the original audio. It says dubbed in Italian, but then with English subtitles, which is a really weird, really weird way to watch it. Uh, like about halfway through, I'm like, they're saying chow and pronto. And I'm like, that's not Swedish, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, um, but I, I, I did like the movie. It kind of, I was expecting something almost like kids, but it's, uh, it's not as gritty. It's not as, um, harsh. It's actually a sweet movie. It is. Yeah. Even, even so. with the lesbian angle where, you know, it could get all out of proportion. It's a sweet movie. Yeah. So, um, what did you guys uh, think of fucking them all? It, I, well, when I saw the title of this, I thought, "What the hell are you guys getting?" Me <laughs> Started to worry, but yeah, didn't realize it was the name of a town either. And then for the first twenty minutes, I'm like, "Okay, what are they referring to? I haven't even heard this name yet." But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was really unexpected. It's not at all what I had in my mind when I saw the stills. So. It sort of came out of left field. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I quite liked the um, the the two female protagonists. Uh, they appealed to me for uh, some odd reason. They sort of reminded me of high school, like real high school, not some bullshit high school version you see in Hollywood. So I thought that was really well done from that perspective. And yeah, I'm with Kurt. It's probably one of the better uh, high school movies I've seen. Andrew? Okay. Andrew <laughs> <laughs> has fallen asleep. Um, so, well, I guess um, one thing I... Sorry. Oh, no, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> the little on my microphone off. Um, no, I'm... Of the two movies we watched, this is definitely my favorite of the two. Um, and just sticking with... Uh, you guys are talking about the title. Uh, I also thought it was a city. Um, when I, or I mean, I thought it was a person the first time I saw it, so I was a little bit surprised by that. But then um, the uh, the AKA title is "Show Me Love," and it's unbelievable how much better the title "Fucking Amal" is than "Show Me Love." 
Show Me Love is so just cheesy and thrown out there because you can't have the F word, um, you know, I guess floating around in, in um, film festivals or whatever, especially on this side of the pond. So, yeah, Fucking Amal is a much deeper title and a much better title, and it explains the movie so much more because, for me, I guess digging into it a little bit right away is it's less about to uh, it's less about a love story and a relationship and a lesbian story than it is just sort of a I don't want to say it's a coming of age movie but it's definitely more about just being a teenager and the lives of a teenagers in small towns and um, getting more in depth with the characters more really than it is a lesbian film I felt like that was just sort of I don't know not this. It didn't feel like that was the central theme to me. That was just sort of there to help move the story along and make it that much more interesting. But yeah, to me, and like Marina said, it's real. It's it's totally believable. Like the high school life is so much more real. The party that they they go to, you know, it's just a few kids kind of standing around having a, a drink or whatever. That's so much more believable than toilet paper in the trees and TVs being thrown out the window and a rock band in the corner and all that stuff and well now so, yeah, I really liked it it's funny that you mentioned the toilet paper in the trees because um, I was going to say the movie kind of reminded me a little bit of American Teen which I saw a couple of weeks ago and um, it's funny because this is obviously a fictional movie American Teen supposedly you know a real documentary and in some ways this felt more real than American Teen not that I didn't like American Teen, um, but yeah, uh, right. isn't this just believable as hell? Like everything, all the characters and the settings. And Kurt mentioned the parents, which was one of the first things I wrote down in my little notes: is how much I love the parents and how believable they were. All three, like so, uh, the the dark-haired girl. I don't recall their names, um, but the dark-haired girl has two parents, and they're rather, you know middle upper middle class or middle class at least uh, edu- highly educated and then the uh, um the uh blonde uh girl uh Agnes and Ellen I think are the oh, two yeah, main so characters El- Ellen uh the blonde haired girl is um uh her mother is uh you know single parent and probably a very blue collar job and they're barely surviving in the apartment that they live in um and uh yeah all three of them were were great uh actually a funny thing that i just read on imdb uh we were already kind of talking about the title apparently the title was uh something that lucas moodyson had wrote on the first page of the script and somebody saw it there and just said that would be a good title and so he just used it yeah, because it is a line of dialogue in the movie, and it's such yeah. a it, it beautifully brings the title like the, the confusion of what you think the title is versus what it actually is when Elin first says, "Nothing ever happens here, fucking them all." Like it, yeah. it just it makes the title sing. But you're absolutely right. I'm sure the uh, "Show Me Love" was added because, um, uh, well, one, it's the closing song, isn't it? And two, uh, um, uh, it. It's just a more palatable title, but it it it, it undersells. Uh, I guess one scares people away, and the other undersells. So uh, <laughs> just waters it down completely. I mean, fucking them all describes the movie so well. It's all about these kids and being bored, and and you know what they do in 
in, in this small town instead of being bored and talk about their dreams and I, yeah it, it just gets to the heart of the movie whereas show me love is just stupid it's it sounds like a hollywood romantic comedy something uh that i wanted to bring up and this is just kind of an you know off the cuff comment but um the the one girl who plays i guess ellen kind of reminded me a little bit of scarlett johansson but um on the flip side the one who played agnes really reminded me of claire danes and it's weird because there's even a poster of Romeo and Juliet in the background. Like this, obviously, the movie came out in 98. Uh, there's a lot of 90s kind of pop culture references, and the music is very 90s. Um, and I, actually, that's something else that I really liked about it um, because, you know, I was in high school in the 90s, so it just kind of added a little bit of authenticity for me anyway. Yeah, it made it feel a little bit more immediate. Yeah, I could relate to it a little bit more because I had the same sort of feeling. And it, it's a shame, actually, that uh, the actress that plays uh, the, the blonde actress, who I think, if if I had to make an argument, is the main character of the movie. The movie opens and closes with her, right. uh, even though um, a, like there's probably. Lynn may have more screen time in the middle, like it seems to be from her point of view. But I think that the transition of Lynn's character is 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 the main point of the film. And it's interesting that that actress never went on to make another movie after this one. She actually, if you've seen Lucas Moodyson's later film, uh, Lilia Forever, she's like second unit director. Or she's behind the scenes on on, on the uh, on the film. The, the the actress that plays Agnes, the uh, um, She's done a few other things, but uh, uh, Ellen, not not so much. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Because it, it reminded me of, like, if you've seen the movie Bend It, like Beckham, um, you know, the the Indian girl, um, Paraminder, I don't remember her full name, she's a little more mousy in the movie and a little more drab, but uh, Kira Knightley, who is the supporting actor, uh, you know, jumped into the spotlight. And I could see that from... I mean, Lynn has the much more showy performance in the movie, and she's both of the actors. The reason why the movie works so well is because those two actresses are just great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they really, are. and I love, I especially the one who plays um, Agnes, like her how she grows throughout the movie. Like she's not particularly attractive. She's very like you. I don't know. I think you use the word mousy and just shy, and then almost at the very end when they're walking out of the school together hand in hand um she's very pretty and confident and confident and smiling and uh, and you can see now that i think after i saw that i think back to the rest of the movie and you can see that happen slowly throughout the whole movie i thought that was really really well portrayed well the um the movie is at its core, a movie about confidence, which really, you know, that's a teen thing, right? Your personality starts to develop, you know, develop a little more when in your late teens and your sense of self-confidence starts to grow. And uh, I think ultimately the, the movie boils down to confidence. I, and both of them are, I mean, Elin swaggers with her friends and postures, but I actually think Elin is the least, the lesser confident one. She actually has to latch on to Agnes's pillar of strength, especially in the final scene is the big sort of revelation. It almost seems like Agnes gets there a lot faster uh, than Elaine, but it's the very last scene in the bathroom um, 
where Lynn's saying, yeah, let's just walk out, you know, like literally coming out of the water closet in this case. Um, yeah. That yeah, reminiscent of, um, uh, I can't think of the two girls' names in American Beauty, though. Very similar. The one that seems all confident and, and the pretty one or whatever isn't really, whereas the more homely, shy one is Me, the one that Mina Suvari and Thora Birch, just for Thank reference. Well, I think that's fairly typical of a lot of movies of this genre, too, though. I mean, it's not the first time that I've seen that. I think you watch enough of them and you start to see that repeated constantly, which is, you know, the the pretty girl is actually not the one with the self-confidence. It's the one that's sitting in the corner. I mean, that's not exactly a new concept, but I, I think he's it's handled really well here, but it's by far not a new con a new concept at all. That's true. Maybe it's just a little bit more subtle here. I, I, one other thing that I really liked during the movie, I mean, the movie, I don't think, like, it does amp itself up a few times in the movie. Like, there's a suicide attempt in the movie, which is a little bit, you know, the way it's stopped and everything is a bit on the cliche side. But a lot of like, and even like the coming out of the closet kind of thing is a bit, but it, but the movie's so natural that the, those scenes work. But the one thing that I really liked, um, and it's didn't catch it the first viewing, but the second viewing, it, it, it became really obvious. The movie opens up with, um, with Elin fighting with her sister because there's no, um, chocolate, uh, stuff to put in the milk. And, uh, the movie closes... Uh, and, and, you know, there's a big fight and everything with her sister over something quite trivial, but it's symptomatic of the fact that there's nothing in her life or whatever. And then the movie closes with the two of them sharing an overstuffed, way too much chocolate. There's a big speech about it um, in the milk. It's, it's, it was a nice way to frame the story i mean it sounds really goofy when you're listening to me describe it here <laughs> but the way it's done in the movie it's because it's the beginning and the end of the movie it's it's actually like i didn't catch it the first time um but the second time i thought oh that's really that really works oh absolutely i think that i, I that's what kind of sold me on the movie actually i love the ending where they're talking about chocolate milk and it just i don't know the message i sort of got from that is these two girls that have matured all the way through this whole movie in the last 30 seconds or something or so you just realize oh they are still just just kids like yeah just having chocolate milk and I, I thought it was great well not just that but also like the way they they lead to that scene they're like oh we're going home to fuck now or something like that and so you totally think oh okay that's where this is going and then they just end up drinking chocolate milk <laughs> They could have ended it with just the walking out of the school and then it would have been all, you know, Hollywood ending. But that tacking on, which I usually really hate, mm-hmm. really works here. Yeah, actually, yeah. like I thought it was picking up and I thought it was going to go on from there. But then I'm glad that they did end it the way they did. Like it really worked. Yep. It's just a nice little bullet at the end of the movie. It's like 15 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the movie runs at a very, very crisp 89 minutes. I mean, it's exactly the right running time. Yeah. Uh, Something else I want to mention, um, 
it's kind of interesting, I guess, is the uh, the male characters in this movie. Um, they're obviously not the focus. They're not the main characters. Um, but uh, I like the way that they were portrayed as just kind of, I don't know, like jerks, really. I mean, I felt for the one guy who was kind of just being used uh, by Ellen, I guess, as she was trying to figure out her sexuality or whatever. But... Um, you know, I, and I don't know if it's because the movie is kind of supposed to be from more of like a lesbian point of view, but these these guys are not held up to be any sort of uh, heroes or anything. I mean, they're just completely like... Dumb kids. Yeah. Which, you know, is kind of refreshing to see. Yet, oddly enough, Agnes's dad is like... He's he's not a guy that, that's just posturing to his daughter. He He honestly... Like, he has a speech about... You know, when you get older, high school and everything that happens in high school isn't really going to matter. And it's not done in a very maudlin or obvious or preachy kind of way. It's 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 really the way someone would talk to their kid. Yeah. And then she has the great response of, yeah, but what do I do about now? <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, too, because that speech is um, going back to American Teen. I wish one of the parents in that movie would have given that speech to their kids in American Teen because all the kids are just like miserable and have all this pressure on them and the parents don't have any advice to give them at all, you know, and it's just... It was a nice scene. I liked it. But isn't it in American culture, isn't there so much emphasis on the teenage years and the teenage experience? Like the prom in the United States or in American culture more than any other country in the world is like emphasized as like, you know, the only equivalent night would be like your wedding or something. I mean, it just, it's, it's fascinating that, um, I mean, from another country's perspective on the thing that the, um, they don't have that kind of crazy emphasis. Like the teenage years are the absolute best years of your life. And if you don't, do everything as a teen, then your life will suck. And, and, and that's totally unrealistic. In any, but for some reason, American culture does emphasize that. I guess because the teens have a lot of the disposable income. So, of course, a lot of the cultures aimed at them, the, the consumption culture. But, yeah, I liked, I liked the dad's speech. And the dad has another scene where he's in her room and he's giving her a CD. And when he says he listened to the CD and he liked it, you don't get the sense that he was just saying that, you know, like you, you get the sense that this guy's really trying to connect to his daughter, but not in a, like a creepy movie kind of way, but in a, in a, in a way that he's actually concerned and, and, uh, he's, you know, he's trying to stay out of her way, but help her at the same time. I really like that. I think it's interesting, too, what you were saying about, you know, the difference between this being a Swedish movie, focusing on the teenage years, but not glorifying it, kind of, you know, saying that this isn't your life, like things can get better from here or whatever. And, you know, I think that really, like, from what I know of Sweden, I don't know too much about it, but I'm pretty sure I think they do they have free, like, post-secondary education, things like that. So it's very much, it seems like their culture is more about, you know, after high school is when your life really begins. And um, you kind of get that from this movie, I think. Yeah. I, have one, Chris, I have one criticism. Okay. Very, it's somewhat minor I guess but uh, my one criticism is and I understand that it's sort of part of the, it's 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 in the story the whole idea of um, falling in love and it just happens to be that they fall in love with each other and they happen to be girls but 
this idea that life is better once you find a partner that rubbed me the wrong way <laughs> I would have been happier if they hadn't ended up together uh, just because that's for me that would have sent a better message not that the message that the movie sends is a bad one but it just seemed I don't know it just didn't sit right with me it seemed really needy and that's not what I want you know girls don't need to have somebody in their lives to feel confident and feel that they can do what they want on the other hand, that's contrasted with uh, Elin's sister, who has the sort of doofus, macho boyfriend um, that, you know, she says, oh, I'm probably going to end up with this guy and yada, yada, yada. And you can clearly tell that she's she's not happy with him. And, you know, she every time there's an argument with him involved, she's got to get in there and, and she doesn't even agree with him, but she's got to get him, you know, like he has, he gets in a couple like scuffles physical scuffles when they're hanging out it like outside of some store at one point and then there's the big fight with uh when Alin is dating the uh the other guy and johan and and uh he's talking that you know women cannot understand how to use a cell phone properly <laughs> you know um yeah that uh I, I don't think the movie uh says that you know just having a partner is 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 what's going to give you happiness. Well, yeah. I think it's worth noting, too, though, that the sister never ends up by herself. Like, I don't even know. We're not shown. We don't know. Yeah, but it's clearly implied that she goes with Johan, right? Well, exactly. So, I mean, there's this idea. There is this sort of pushing to the fact that, yeah, it's having somebody there to stand with you is the better way to go, which is fine. But for my liking, I would have preferred if somebody ended up by themselves. Because it's not all about finding somebody to be with, you know? Well, I think um, one thing that I kind of got out of it, though, is that at the end, I mean, yes, they are together and they've kind of, you know, whatever come out of the closet, so to speak. But I wasn't quite um, sold that um, Ellen was necessarily a lesbian and that this was going to be a lasting relationship or anything like that. Like, you never really, because it just happens and then the movie ends. You know, I don't know if... If like, do you guys feel like it was implied that that's it? End of story. They're together forever, or what? No, I still no. think it's a puppy love high school yeah. relationship. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it was implied that they would live happily ever after or anything like that. Yeah. No, I I go with that. Um. Okay. Um. Any other thoughts on uh, fucking them all, Andrew? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> thing no i didn't really have i i would say the last thing i would say is i actually kind of look forward to seeing it again i think this is one that'll probably get a little bit better actually uh, uh upon repeat viewings like kurt said as someone who's seen it three times yeah it, it it's a movie that just brings it's a such a comfort movie uh when you watch it it brings a smile to your face um did you guys notice the one i don't know like the the style i know you mentioned sort of the um grainy or whatever there's a few scenes where well one in particular there's a lot of close-ups and stuff and there's this Mm -hmm. one scene where they're out in the park and they're talking about what they're going to do with their future and what they want to do as when they grow up and all that stuff and it's there are all these really close ups of their face faces. And then after the conversation is pretty much over and we're gonna leave, the camera pulls away for a second 
and they're they're actually sitting on two opposite yeah. tables about 15 feet apart from each other. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Like it totally threw me for a loop. I was like, "Oh, that's kind of weird." It was almost but like I, uh, that naked gun gag or whatever, where you see two fight. people shooting, yeah, and then all of a sudden they're like right beside each other. But it also shows that the two couples, uh, you know, philosophically or whatever, are miles apart. I mean, yeah. that, I think that image is designed to convey that visually that the the um, you know this couple and that couple are you know completely at odds with like you know wh- what they're going to do and 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 where they're going to end up um yeah there is something else too that um i mean you mentioned close ups but there was a very like i thought you know overall there wasn't a lot of um crazy camera work or anything like it was very almost verite but um there was one thing that he kept doing throughout the movie where it would be all of a sudden just this quick zoom and it kept like doing this like swooping camera zoom like there's a few scenes where it kept happening and uh, I thought it was kind of interesting because it was like I don't know just really usually in moments of like I guess high drama or something it really just kind of pulled in on the face all of a sudden and it was a very obvious way of doing it but other than that, it kind of almost reminded me of like watching Degrassi or something. That's like the feel I got from it almost. Except unlike Degrassi, which is static and relatively flat looking, I, I find that, yeah, uh, uh, show me love fucking them all is, is very stylish. Like it, it's it, in a good way, not in a beat you over the head or look what we can do. It, it just, it creates an extra layer of intimacy that if you just shot this medium shot, flat, static, which a lot, far too many romantic comedies or dramas are shot. Um, this is this is obviously a. Um, I don't know if it, if I'd say like it's a it's a visionary way. It may have just been, you know, that it was a sixteen millimeter small film and and they did whatever they felt like. I don't know how rigorously it was planned, but the results are. Uh, are very good um like i mean it's a very colorful like it's a, a lot of it's filmed under yellow filters if i'm not mistaken and and uh um it yeah, doesn't that, that it's almost like it's unintentional it's just this is the way it turned yeah, out yeah maybe they 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 didn't light it as high i i don't know i i, I mean his movies uh i've seen a couple of his other films and uh, they all have a very in your face you are there kind of shooting style um and usually a low like a not high grade 35 millimeter uh like i mean ironically this one is called um uh, show me love in in the english language which is so plain jane or fucking them all which in the uh, you know which is will turn people off his movie a hole in my heart which actually sounds very innocent and is a very good title is about a bunch of friends in their apartment making their own very graphic porn film which <laughs> most people hate the movie like it's so aggressive um and it's got the nice innocent uh title um but uh He's always had a grimy aesthetic to his films. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's what kind of caught me off guard. Like I said, I was expecting kids. I kept waiting for something really horrible to happen to someone. And, you know, it never really does. Yeah. Well, here's the one horrible thing that does happen. And it was something that I liked in the movie because both characters um, defy the cliches that are overlaid onto characters. When Agnes 
opens up on her friend in the wheelchair. Like usually you see a character in the wheelchair and yada, yada, yada. When Agnes opens up on that character, it is a harsh scene to watch, especially when this is the character that up until that point you're really rooting for. And she is just both barrels nasty. I mean, you know, she's going through stuff, but it's, it's just a nasty retaliation uh, on, on her character. And then later on, you see the girl in the wheelchair do equally or even more nasty things back to her. And, um, and likewise with Elaine's character does a bunch of things that are not, you know, there's a complexity to these characters. They're not good all the time and uh, they're, they're really finding themselves and the movie doesn't gloss over that. It really gives you a sense of, you know, these people are going to take their frustrations out on other people, just like real people do. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, welcome to high school. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Well, so are we kind of wrapping up the discussion on fucking them all? Mm, Yeah, we can move on. Mm, there was one more thing that I wanted to bring up. Oh yes, the um, the use of pop culture in uh, um, in this movie was kind of interesting. Most of the song choices in the film are English songs. Um, I think even the magazine that they're reading is in English. Yeah, like where she looks up, you know, whether raves are in or out. Um, and uh, like the posters on all the posters on the wall, like you you mentioned. Uh, um, Romeo and Juliet. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, but then there's also, I guess because it's Sweden, there's like, I think I saw a Dominic Hasek poster for <laughs> hockey fans. Uh, um, and Nirvana, there was a Nirvana poster. And there was some sort of teen pop tart, like with her perfume line, the the, the, the one perfume. I didn't recognize who it was. Uh, but um, I found it interesting that small town Sweden would have such an emphasis on um, English language or American pop culture. And the, I think there's a scene where they are going to, you know, hop in a hitchhike to um, uh, Stockholm. And is is it like a, is it Foreigner that's playing in the car? Oh, right. Uh, when, yeah. they, when they basically have their first kiss. Yeah, what was that? I remember being really, like, surprised and kind of like, what the heck, when they chose that song yeah right 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 um it's actually a good uh, like the, the soundtrack for the movie is is nicely balanced with the film it's it's an interesting soundtrack yeah actually um one other thing too um just talking about the sort of pop culture and stuff the one thing that i thought was kind of interesting um that was very swedish that i didn't quite get was they're they always watching tv and they're always like playing like bingo or something some sort of uh bingo game that was bizarre because you it was high school kids yeah like i was like really like that's what they do but sweden that that's a small town thing my parents live in really small town newfoundland uh in fact the town is named dildo i kid you not (laughs) um i kid you not and the communities down there have bingo on the community access channel that you play and then you phone in when you when you get a bingo and and i guess the cards are the cards are numbered like serial numbers on them so that they can check by just entering the serial number of the card whether or not it matches up so that in 2008 or whatever in small town canada (laughs) there is on-screen tv bingo (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and I, there was a conversation that um, I think the one girl has with her mom about it that was kind of funny. I can't remember exactly, but it was like kind of like, why are we watching this? And she was kind of like trying to justify it. And she was like, oh, you know, because the music and stuff. And I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think she liked to see people win or whatever. I, I yeah. think game shows, I mean, Terry Gilliam's um, Time Bandits, the parents in that show are ridiculously addicted to game shows. And I think that's a, I mean, it's almost a, cliche i think uh that uh you know like the the parents lives who are exhausted or depressed sit around watching game shows yeah. or whatever um but on in contrast agnes's parents are uh you know much more literate or whatever they never play that into the story in any obvious way which is a good thing like there's no need to but uh it is fascinating to see the uh um relationships of these kids with their parents and like, and like everything else in the movie, it, it feels fairly authentic. Right. Okay. Well, the, the risk of offending Henrik or purposely to offend Henrik. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to sound ethnocentric or whatever, but it doesn't pop American pop culture, um, influence and find its way into the lives of most people in, in, foreign countries or at least you know developed countries like sweden and japan and uh, you know france or or whatever i mean i think like nirvana is not just an american thing it's something that crosses borders and, and especially movies i think like they watch i don't know die hard and 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 face off and all these american movies um generally don't they because that's no no, no. I, I i wouldn't disagree i i mean american pop culture manages more than any other country in the world manages to seep its way into all the crevices um here and there i just thought that it was really in, in this movie it was um you don't see a lot of non-american pop culture elements in this movie or if they were there i didn't have the frame of reference to spot them yeah, well, I just didn't. I don't know how surprising that is. I mean, I just think that that's normal. Well, I but think wrong. I never lived abroad. I whatever, but well, I think what's always interesting is yeah, there's always like you know American pop culture all over the place, but it's always interesting which particular elements happen to kind of cross over because it's not everything, right? But you know, like yeah, I always find it interesting what things have kind of caught on elsewhere and which what things haven't. Um, or what things a filmmaker would choose to put in his film. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, Kurt, it's it's a small town in Sweden, which, you know, might imply that it, it would be harder to get access to some of these, you know, worldwide cultural things. But, um, yeah. So uh, I just wanted to ask, actually, um, so is this is there actually a Region 1 DVD of Fucking Them All out there? Well, I... I I believe there there is. Of course, it would have the title "Show Me Love." I mean, personally, my set. Um, there is a set in Britain um, that came out a few years ago, and I mean, it was dirt cheap. You got four Moodyson films in it. Um, I believe it was uh, it was uh, fucking them all, and it was Lilia Forever, and it was a hole in my heart, and the last one I believe was Together. Um, and so there were four discs and I think there was a booklet for each disc and it was a beautiful fold out set and it was like 14 pound, which is about 30 bucks. Um, 
and I bought that. So I, I have uh, I haven't actually watched together or uh, a hole in my heart yet. But uh, Lilia Forever is about as far from um, fucking them all as as possible. It's a, it's a uh, and and I think Ramstein does the entire soundtrack <laughs> on it. Wow! And it's a movie about like uh, um, sex trade slavery. It's it's totally the. It's a great movie though because it's told in one of these uh, dreamy, not quite reality uh, style. Even though there's a bunch of harsh things happening uh i guess something like dancer in the dark or or whatnot but uh right. um he has, he has several films but anyways that set what but of course you have to have a dvd player that'll play pal yeah and region two discs and whatever but anyways anyone that's listening to this podcast should have a region free dvd player and anyone who's watching foreign films or you know modern films from around the world you pretty much need a region dvd player even if that region dvd player is your computer yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sure this, like, like I said, this movie, uh, if you go into the IMDb and look up the number of awards that this movie won as it played festivals, it obviously warmed people's hearts. And, uh, um, certainly Moodyson's, even though some of his films are way out there is usually a, a name to watch if you're, uh, following the uh, film festival circuit. I just looked it up. There is a Region 1 DVD. Um, Amazon has it listed for 27 bucks. So, for the same amount of money, <laughs> um, you can get four of his films. And I mean, the transfers on these films, I have no idea what your downloaded copy looked like, but the transfer on my Region 2 uh, PAL disc is gorgeous. But did your Region 2 PAL disc have Italian dubbing? No Italian dubbing. You missed out no big Italian time. dubbing, but the <laughs> subtitles were there. <laughs> yeah. Mine well, didn't have the Italian dubbing either. Oh, uh, well, you know. It's nice, and we, we were there. Yeah. So, <laughs> Marina, did you did you find a Region 1 copy then? You, no, I didn't. I, I found just found a copy online. Oh, okay. But I found a copy that had subtitles and was not dubbed in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... Um, Let's move on and talk about our other movie this week, uh, or this month, which is a little bit easier to find, although it is, um, I guess, technically a foreign film as well. Um, Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures um, came out in 1994, um, starring Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky. It was Kate Winslet's first film, by the way. Yes, very interesting. Um, so, Marina, uh, this was kind of your choice. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? It was actually my suggestion. It wasn't my choice. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually think the other one I suggested would have been a better tie-in, but Peter Jackson is always good, and Heavenly Creatures is always fantastic. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, this was based on a true story yep. of a couple of young women that um, killed a woman, um, and there was some sort of odd relationship there not odd but just um, uncommon friendship something else as well Um, you know I've forgotten how much um, fantasy there is in this film it's been years since I've seen it and when it went into dream sequences I couldn't believe I couldn't remember any of it right well so this uh you know, this was obviously before P. 
Peter Jackson was Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson, and it was actually even before Peter Jackson was the Frighteners Peter Jackson. Um, Given, though, this movie did get an Academy Award nomination for screenplay, and I guarantee you the the fantasy elements in this movie... Uh, you know, plus Peter Jackson lobbied and made his own demo reel to get the Lord of the Rings job. But this gave, this was the credibility, not um, Brain bad Dead or Dead or Alive, <laughs> or Bad Taste or yeah. Meet the Feebles, which is a pornographic Muppet film. Um, I guarantee you it was this film that really locked the prestige angle to give him the kind of money that because he does. He, this movie was a very low budget film and the fantasy sequences are stunning. They're they're gorgeous. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that really struck me watching this movie again now is that um, it kind of reminded me of this is Peter Jackson's Pan's Labyrinth in a way. And, you know, if if this had come out after Peter Jackson was known as, you know, Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson. People would have been pissed. Well, you know, I think it would have been a lot more, there would have been a lot more buzz around it. Like, as it is, this is kind of, I know, like you said, it was nominated for an Academy Award and whatnot, but I do feel like this is still kind of a movie a lot of people haven't seen. Really? In 1994, I I guarantee you, I, I saw it in the cinema in 94. I, I, this was a big this it wasn't huge. It wasn't Hollywood, but it was, um, it was a movie that was not hard to find in '94. That is true, yeah. But I, you know, I guess it's just, uh, I, like I said, I mean, Peter Jackson. Not a lot of people really knew who he was at the time. Um, but that said, you know, it stands on its own anyway, and you know, deserves recognition regardless of you know who who he was beforehand or who he went on to be afterward. Um, but, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, as you mentioned, Marina, it's based on a true story. And, you know, it's about these two girls who um, they actually kill one of the girls' mother, mothers, which is, you know, killing your mother is not something that uh, most kids think to do. Uh, it, you know, uh, I think the tagline here for the movie was the true story of a crime that shocked a nation. So you got to think this happened in New Zealand. I mean, that just makes it even more crazy and and you know right in the 50s um which is pretty insane um but you know the thing that i was thinking about watching this too is that um it is still a movie about two people who killed someone and you see these kinds of movies sometimes about serial killers and whatnot and i'm not saying that they're serial killers but do you guys feel like um you know maybe this overly glorifies these these killers or I mean, I guess we don't really know the true story, but um, what do you feel about heavenly creatures? Well, you're definitely supposed to feel sympathy for them. Yeah. And be on their side. Um, that all fades away really fast because that, that, that murder scene is brutal as hell. Well, um, yeah, beating someone to death with a brick. Like, of all the ways you're going to kill someone, and that's... She, and at that point, the mother is, like, nice, you know? Yeah. You're, she... You're like, really? You're going to hit this lady over the head with a brick many times? Well, actually, uh, I, I honestly, to God, having watched, this is probably the fourth or fifth time that I've seen this movie. And the, the, what struck me watching it on this viewing is really how exploitive this movie is. Yeah. I mean, you watch, I mean, they're all very patented Peter Jackson camera moves, these sort of handheld 
jump right into a close-up like a, it's like a walk right up to the person's face with the camera he does it a lot in his earlier films and he there's a few scenes particularly in return of the king where he uses it as well um but it, it's done to make it feel like a horror film and it's weird because it's an odd meshing with um with the rest of the film now given i like the film a lot i think it's a really good well-told intricate interesting story but i i know very much that peter jackson is laying on the exploitive uh side of things pretty heavily um and well, he, did, any, did anybody get like a really i personally I, okay first of all i have never seen this before this was the first time for me and i'm not very familiar with peter jackson other than the frighteners and uh lord of the rings obviously and king kong i haven't seen any of his earlier stuff I got a huge Terry Gilliam vibe out of this whole movie. Did anybody else feel as with the way the camera moves, particularly in the fantastical moments, the camera zooming up, like you said, and there's a one point where it actually goes into the sandcastle and runs around and some of the angles of the people's faces and all those clay figures. Well, the homemade aspect of it definitely screams Gilliam. It, it, it felt a lot like well even even some of the camera movements and angles and the way just the sort of style but generally just the fantastical parts not necessarily the rest of it but maybe that's actually vintage Peter Jackson and I just don't know because I haven't seen him but it, it felt very Gilliam to me well I think yeah subject matter definitely it would seem like something that Gilliam would probably gravitate towards as well but uh, you know it is kind of uh especially when you first start watching the movie and if you don't necessarily know what it's about, you might think, wow, why, why would Peter Jackson choose to do this other than the fact that it was took place in New Zealand? But you can definitely see, I mean, obviously there's, it, there's a lot of dark elements to the story. And then the fact that he worked in all the fantasy stuff, it kind of makes sense. I loved how they used uh, Pauline um, Parker, Reaper, um, how they used her real diary entries for the voiceover narration voice some voiceover narrations suck and yeah. uh, but a good voiceover narration can make the movie uh and this is one of the cases where the voiceover narration has an extra ring to it because he's using word for word diary entries but on the other hand it does make the story feel a bit even more exploitive because of the way they're layered onto the film uh, i'm not even using that phrase as a criticism because I don't have any emotional attachment to the story. Um, you know, I mean, even had they told the Christian French Leslie Mahaffey murders, now they did make a real trashy movie up here on the um, Paul Bernardo um, killings, uh, which is a famous Canadian murder case. But I, I imagine people with an emotional, uh, I'm speculating, but people with an emotional attachment to that story would probably find this movie offensive. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at because, you know, when movies like this come out, and I think we talked about on the Film Junk podcast a while back about that Carla Homolka movie, and um, because, you know, because it happened here and we're aware of it, it seems very like, oh my God, they made a movie out of that, that's horrible. But then you think about all the other serial killer movies and things like that that come out that you don't know the... Like Monster. Exactly. And and you think, oh, and then it's easier for you to kind of sympathize with the, the killers or whatever. And sometimes maybe that's that's 
fine. Like maybe, you know, there are good reasons why they turned into killers or whatever, but you got to understand too, there's lots of people who are probably very ticked off that you're telling the killer's side of the story, you know, and I can see that. Absolutely. Um, I, I, one thing about this, uh, this movie too, is, um, I, I thought it was very interesting. Um, the kind of the, uh, what do you call it? The, the epilogue or whatever of what happened to them afterwards. And actually I was reading up a little bit on, uh, what happened to them. And, uh, one of the girls actually went on to be a best selling author. Yes. She, uh, lives in, this is uh, Kate Winslet's, uh, um, character in the film she ended she's in scotland i believe she was a mystery writer of all things yeah she writes under the name ann perry yeah and and if i'm not if i'm not mistaken um the uh peter jackson had some consultation with her during the prep of the movie even though the vast majority of new zealand was not even aware of where she was peter jackson it wasn't apparently that hard to find her and uh um so there was some consultation I, with her. I could see that being kind of controversial as well um but well they got nine years i think in prison uh probably due to their very young age even though i think they were tried in adult court right um but they they got nine years and and then apparently the judge imposed a life ban on uh on the two of them getting back together right um, Maybe we should spend a little bit of time and talk about the uh, lesbian angle in the movie. It certainly is what pairs it up with Show Me Love. Um, but yeah. in this movie, they uh, Peter Jackson definitely plays on the 1950s um, homosexuality hysteria, particularly with the university professor dad. When, she, when he first comes over to her... Um, uh, to Pauline. So this is Kate Winslet's character, whose name I don't um, recall, character name. But anyway, uh, when they come over to Pauline's, he comes she over to Pauline's Juliet. mother and says, I think our girls are a little too intimate. And then it's like pouring down lightning and the close-up is like practically up his <laughs> nose. It's so close. And then immediately after, there's a boom and a peal of thunder uh, when he says it. Like, I mean, it is played to the max. I mean, Peter Jackson's definitely making a comment on the um, morality of New Zealand society in the 1950s, the way that that is played up as like... And, and then, of course, all the scenes with... Um, uh, Pauline's psychiatrist and uh, oh, yeah, and his <laughs> speech to her mother saying, don't worry, science is progressing at a <laughs> remarkable pace. Someday we may even find a cure. You know, I, I just... Uh, um, there's definitely a... The, everyone in the movie considers the, uh, the uh, lesbian to be bad, and the movie actually makes the point that um, their intimacy is what led them to murder and i'm curious if it was a boy and a girl that committed the murder to stay together if uh what the reaction would have been either if a if they made a movie of it or b what the reaction would have been because it's still creepy i mean anytime kids plot together to kill one of their parents i mean that's just disturbing on any level but they definitely are playing the blame game um and i'm, I'm not sure the movie feels that way i think the movie sort of plays it up to 11 in a way of mocking that theory 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I guess um, it, it's also interesting that, um, you know, and this is according to the Wikipedia entry on it, so I don't know how accurate it is, but apparently um, in March of 2006, um, one of the one of the girls, um, I guess it would have been Juliet, said that uh, their relationship was obsessive, but they were not lesbians. So she just flat out says, yeah, we weren't lesbians. Um, so I'm wondering how much, and again, now they, they did have the, the actual diary, but I'm wondering how much of the, the lesbian angle was just played up for the movie or if it really was kind of a factor. I don't even think it's that strong in the movie, though. I really don't. It's only the parents laying that element on that makes it that way well but there is a love scene in the movie that's you know a little bit more than what we even saw in fucking a mall which you know and up until that point i was kind of thinking yeah i thought i, I remember this being a bit more about lesbians and but it wasn't there but then towards the end they do have sort of a love scene together where it kind of comes out a bit but um yeah i don't know i mean it's it's definitely you know the reason why we pair these two movies together. It's just one of those things that when you think of this movie, you think of that element of it, but maybe it's not even that important, you know. Aside from these sort of mockery things that Peter Jackson's doing about you know the the beliefs of people back in the fifties. Well, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, Marina. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that the. the um kind of in contrast to fucking a mall where I mentioned that the the individual characters and just the, the relationship itself didn't wasn't really the central theme of the movie I think with this movie I understand the characters individually less and I understand their relationship a lot more like I think the film focuses on the relationship more than it does the individual characters and what they're well aside from maybe um the, i can't remember her name the one that's writing the diary not this character yes thank you um aside from her you don't i don't i didn't feel like i knew kate winslet's character at all um but you did get you did grasp the the level of emotion that the two had for each other i thought that was that was weird like the, the relationship is deeper and more profound and more um, emphasized, I guess, than the, the actual individual characters, which is kind of cool. Yeah. The, the, to me, the relationship felt really um, um, uh, almost like needful. Like they had to have this in order to move on. Like as individuals, they don't really seem like strong people. They're, they're both lonely in their own little way but together they seem to create one full person and going back to the uh, just touching on the lesbianism aspect of it, I sort of got the sense that Pauline really had more at stake than Juliet did I think that emotionally as you know friends, they were both sort of in the same um, you know, they needed each other but I think Pauline's infatuation was much more sexual than Juliet's ever was. Well, it's an interesting point you raise because the way the movie opens uh, with, um, you know, besides the opening where they clearly show the, you know, the aftermath of the murder, um, it opens with Juliet coming into the school and you get the sense that Juliet only becomes friends with Pauline because 
she ha- wants someone to bounce her ideas off of and Pauline becomes friends with Juliet because she just has no friends whatsoever. And it is interesting to see, much like, as you said before, Marina, the cliche of the confident girl not having the wherewithal at, you know, or the, or the confidence, the, the one on the surface. When it comes time for the murder, um, you can see that Juliet is very apprehensive about doing it whereas Pauline now has now the dominant factor in the relationship and she's um she's leading um Juliet around by the hair whereas at the beginning of the movie particularly like with the Mario Lanza and a lot of the um like there's a big thing with Orson Welles where Pauline at one point when they're building their shrine to the heroes of their fantasy land she nominates Orson Welles as one of the pantheon gods and and Juliet's like no and and then all of a sudden he becomes the arch villain of the uh, of the pantheon so you know when it came to the trivial creativity aspect of things Juliet was clearly in control and the dominant factor but when it came down to doing this particular act you can see that Pauline becomes the driving force yeah and again um in terms of whether or not um, either one was kind of insane, if they had any sort of uh, mental issues going on, it seemed more like the the Juliet character towards the beginning was a little bit out there, and Pauline was much more down to earth. But then by the end, that had flipped as well. So um, yeah, I don't know, I, you know, and who knows if that was just written that way for the movie, but um, definitely sort of an interesting arc for both of them, anyway. Um, here's something, I don't know if either, any of you guys knew this, but apparently there was another movie based on this story. It's a French film called uh, Mais ne nous délivrez pas du mal, Don't Deliver Us From Evil. And uh, it's only loosely based on the story, though, because if you read the plot on IMDb, it says, Anne and Lore, neighbors and best friends, barely into their teens, are bored at a convent school where they have taken a vow to sin and serve Satan. <laughs> and uh, basically, I guess they end up killing one of their parents or something. So but. this is like a movie inspired by, I, I believe to this day, that's still the most infamous murder in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, one of those movies that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I, Personally, I feel like not enough people have seen it, but you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong on that because I didn't see this in theaters, but I do remember, you know, the, it getting nominated and all that. So, well, it got massive, massive critical love uh, that year. Yeah, um, I mean, the the copy of the DVD that I have says. You know, it has like basically the whole poster is every major critic four stars yeah. basically down the poster. And by the way, if you ever see that DVD in the store, don't buy it. It's pan and scan and it's awfully um, hacked up. Did anyone actually watch the special edition that came out a couple of years ago? Because it's longer uh, than the theatrical runtime and to be perfectly honest while i do like a lot of the scenes later on in the movie uh the movie does feel about 15 minutes too long um yeah it 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 has a strange pacing structure in the middle of the movie i know watching it the last time i'm like yeah i do love the scene with orson welles and the third man it's it's an awesome scene in the fact that peter jackson is using special effects to actually rip orson welles right out of the movie and put him 
like in Christchurch. Um, and and then that culminates in the the, the kissing sequence uh, that, that you mentioned earlier, where it really underscores the lesbian angle. Uh, but that move that scene goes on forever, and it it really feels a little bit too long. And apparently, the um, director's cut of the movie, which I have not seen, uh, but it is probably the de facto DVD of the movie right now. It's got a blue cover. Um, it uh, it it has extra scenes. In the film. Was it actually the director's cut or was it just uncut? Because I think I remember reading something about it just being like an uncut version of the movie or something like that. But curious as to whether or not it was sort of Peter Jackson's actual vision for the film. Um, I'm just looking it up here on Amazon, but I don't. I have no idea. The one I got was uh, acquired by less than honest means. (laughs) It uh, it that that particular scene didn't seem to go on and on for me on, in the version I watched, so I don't know. I, d- I didn't read any reviews for this movie either. I can't imagine that um, Kate Winslet didn't get a few raves oh, about her. She performance. she got a career out of this movie. Oh, yeah. This this movie yeah. got her absolutely noticed. Um, I mean, she's typically done small movies of course titanic being the absolute exception where you know everyone on the planet saw that movie um but uh you know all of her earlier career films and even her post titanic films have usually been smaller films and it was she just came much like like i used pendant like beckham earlier i mean she was the um she's not the main character in this movie it's pretty it's pretty close but i mean pauline is 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 clearly the movie the movie's framed from pauline's point of view not from juliet's point of view uh but she was the one that i mean i've seen the actress uh, melanie uh lewinsky i've seen her in other films uh in small supporting roles but i mean obviously kate winslet is um you know one of the best actresses of her age working today right sorry Nothing. Oh, <laughs> well, and I mean, it's interesting to see her so young in the movie and the fact that she is, uh, I mean, she's, I don't know how old she was when she made the movie. She's playing a 15 year old or, you know, 14 to 15 because the movie takes place over a couple of years, but she hasn't changed all that much. Yeah, actually, I was going to say that um, it did kind of strike me as a little bit like the actresses seemed a little too old for the age they were playing in the movie. I thought anyway, um, which is an interesting comparison again to fucking them all where they're very much the right age. They look mm-hmm. the part. Um, but you know, not that they're necessarily even the same type of movie that they're comparable, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Any, um, any other thoughts you guys got on heavenly creatures? Well, unlike, uh, unlike, uh, fucking them all where the parents were seemed to be real people. Uh, I mean, given Pauline's mother feels very real. I, Pauline's mother, I mean, she's sympathetic in, in that, you know, she gets offed for, you know, a lack of perspective of the, 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 the two kids. But uh, and she's she's a bit harsh. But, you know, you, you clearly get the impression that she's being harsh because she doesn't want her daughter to end up uh, with her life over after her teenage years, which is implied that that happened because her mother got pregnant so early and yada, yada, yada. But Juliet's parents are like inhuman monsters in the movie. Um, 
the dad is clearly they, they, they basically just I mean, that's why Juliet is so damaged or the movie certainly implies that she's damaged because her parents just drop her off in foreign countries because of her tuberculosis uh, issues. And they you can clearly see that the, the that she is a burden to her parents and that her parents would rather be off cavorting in the academic circles uh, and partying and doing whatever they want to do. And they just, I don't know what they do with their son because they have a younger son who drifts in and out of the movie, but um, they clearly dump her and she's deluded herself that they care, but they, the couple times in the movie, like when they put her in the, um, uh, in the hospice to recover and whatnot, she can, she, those are the times where she's really aware that her parents, uh, you know, are looking for the easiest way out with her as possible. And that's one of the best sympathetic angles towards her character in the way that she is emotionally maligned by her parents. Right. And it's a great irony that those are the parents that Pauline idolizes, like the the, the sepia-toned sequence at the end where... She, they're running for the ship and they're the happy, giving, loving parents is totally at odds from what you see those characters on display, particularly her mother. Her mother's and they, they layer in the affair with her mother. And ironically, her mother's a relationship counselor, <laughs> which makes it even more <laughs> ironic that she is just a disaster with her family. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's totally true. Um so like do you feel that um do you think like that was kind of another uh way that the movie was kind of um exploitive in a way like just the well it's not obviously meant to be told i don't believe that peter jackson's heavenly creatures is designed to be a literal right uh uh realistic portrayal of those murders i believe it's a highly dramatized i mean that that's what makes it such a great movie because of the way it's dramatized but it does not feel uh real in the way that fucking amal feels real it feels like it wants to be like a shakespearean tragedy more than um more than a real telling but i do find it fascinating that peter jackson chose not to follow the court aftermath of the murder the movie ends on the murder with just a few title cards to tell you what happened it much more focuses on the psychology of the murder but i don't think he's i don't ever think that fran walsh and peter jackson the two writers were aiming for to explain things i think they wanted a movie and and they made a great movie it's just it it as a reason for why these characters did it it's all made up as far as i concern I, I don't consider that a strike against the movie it just is what it is yeah but and i think that's kind of one of like these kinds of movies usually have to take that approach like they have to try and humanize the character they have to try and explain when a lot of times some of this stuff is just not explainable like who knows why somebody did something crazy like that you know and um but yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, a lot of the 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 imagination and the dream stuff and the fantasy stuff is pretty fun, and um, the way it's done. I mean, it's throughout the whole movie, and uh, it works really well. What did you guys think of the special effects and the way the special effects were integrated into the movie? Uh, it reminded me a lot of um, 
that uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the the fake documentary that Peter Jackson did called Forgotten Silver. It was around the same time, I think. Maybe yeah, it was one year after. Heavenly one year Creatures. after, and it seems like maybe it was almost like a prep course for that because he kind of had like elements of old films that he was trying to incorporate into this and stuff like the Christchurch that. documentary at the beginning. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was very cool. I haven't seen any of his other early stuff, but I really like the way that the uh, special effects were integrated, and I'm still not quite sure how he managed to pull some of that off, but it was uh, indeed very cool. Definitely. Uh, with the budget that he had, I like there's one scene, I mean, besides the clay figures, which look awesome, um, really awesome, actually, there's a scene where they sort of start to use their imagination, and the surroundings around them just sort of morph into this paradise. That was kind of cool. I like that. I think that was the only major CGI in the film. Um, I, I, don't, I recall reading somewhere of the amount of time it took to render that particular transition. There's also two butterflies that go by in the scene. And, and that everything else, I believe, was done as practical, like in the normal Peter Jackson philosophy of, you know, practical wherever practical can be used. Well, yeah, and I mean, don't forget, this came out in 94, so, you know, I mean, a lot of the, it's not like CG stuff was just, like, super easy to throw in to movies and dirt cheap at that point. Like, it was still kind of just starting to get integrated into a lot of movies, so, um, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest, though, my favorite special effects sequence in the movie, because it really hints to the really early Peter Jackson, like, you know, the fuck them all peter jackson is when she's listening to her psychiatrist and right in the middle of the psychiatrist's long speech this is to pauline all of a sudden a sword rams through him it's really bloody and he he cuts upward and cuts him in half i mean if you watch uh uh, bad taste or uh, or um, dead alive, aka brain dead. Uh, those movies are splatter spectaculars. In fact, I don't think there's ever been a splatter gore movie that can top the sheer insanity of Dead Alive. Like yeah. it is, you know. So it's now 15 years old, and and there have been a lot of people that have tried to do it, but I don't think anyone has actually topped that movie. And there's a few of those elements that actually peek into heavenly creatures which is such an opposite style movie but it's like it's like sam raimi making um you know a, a drama immediately after and he has a couple uh like the that mind reading one with kate blanchett and keanu reeves or whatever the gift um the gift and um except peter jackson does let his splatter side fantasy side creep into the movie uh but in very natural ways and i liked i liked the way it did that yeah well and again it's just like for for anyone who who is a peter jackson fan or at least you know likes the lord of the rings or whatever and then you see this movie and you think it's just going to be some sort of sort of uh drama biopic and you think, oh, wow, that doesn't look like the Peter Jackson I know. Well, watch it because you will see a lot of those elements that you do like about Peter Jackson in there. So, um, any final thoughts on Heavenly Creatures? I'm done. Ditto. Well, I, I'm actually quite looking forward to The Lovely Bones, which mm, is yeah, also a that. dramatic, smaller scale 
movie rather than, you know, like the big budget extravagandas that he has done. Um, and I'm hoping that it follows the heavenly creatures mold because I, I, I've used the word exploitive a couple times over the course of talking about this movie, but oddly enough, I mean that as uh, to a large degree, I actually mean that as a compliment because it makes for some interesting storytelling. Now, someone like Michael Haneke may make an argument that that is the wrong way to tell ostensibly events that actually happen, but I find it a quite interesting way, and I guess I can do that at the secure point that I do not have any emotional attachment yeah. to the story um yeah all right well um let's talk about what we're going to be uh watching next month so it looks like um the insider is uh the one that uh, came out on top with 18 percent of the votes um so that's that's in there and then uh i guess we've talked about it and the movie we're going to pair with it is Soylent Green. So we're all on board with that. It should be uh, kind of an interesting movie to discuss. I have not actually... I don't think I've ever seen it in full. So, And I can't think of, without the help of the IMDb, I can't think of who directed Soylent Green, but remember that Michael Mann is the director of The Insider, and pretty much anything that Michael Mann has done is uh, is worth a few watches so I'm actually kind of looking forward to seeing The Insider I haven't seen it since it played in the cinema oh Richard Fleischer directed Soylent Green nice yep who went on to do Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja yes and Mr. Majestic if you're if you like your Charles Bronson Elmore Leonard ad- adaptations oh wow uh, so uh, we're gonna have a uh, bunch of new selections up on the site for voting for the uh, for the next month's episode. So that'll be up in the next couple of days. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, I guess uh, we hope you'll join us next month when we talk about uh, The Insider and Soiling Green. Uh, visit the website at uh, www.movieclubpodcast.com. Uh, jump into the discussions there. We want to hear your guys' thoughts on the movies. Um, and I guess you can email us uh, if you, you know, need to get in touch with any of us. There's links to our various websites there and uh, contact information. So, um, yeah. Any uh, closing words from anybody out there? While you're at it, uh, it's certainly uh, it's certainly valuable if you enjoyed either one of these two movies to look into Lucas Moodyson's extended library of films he's got more than half a dozen now and certainly it is very much worth uh looking for forgotten silver which sean mentioned another earlier peter jackson film but all of peter jackson's pre-lord of the rings films are worth looking at for their sheer diversity um so uh you know i wouldn't leave either one of these filmmakers i wouldn't leave it at just these two films i would i would go backwards and forwards in their in their filmmaking careers because they are both interesting filmmakers okay so um yeah thanks for listening everyone and uh we'll see you next month here on the movie club podcast kisses